Good morning, everyone. Yeah. See, living out, living out my calling, that's what I'm supposed to be doing, right? So, um, I'd like to open a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll start into the text today. Our Father who art in, he- in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those that sin against us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if we forgive others for their transgressions, you, our Heavenly Father, will also forgive us. Amen. So some of you probably noticed in those verses uh, the anting read, just as you were saying, you're uh, going to make mistakes left and right, so am I. So we're all there. Um, but just as uh, Yen Ting was reading these verses, you'll notice that there's a lot there. There's a lot of uh, information. I mean, there's, there's statements on reconciliation with others. There's statements about the church. Uh, there's ideas of praying, of binding and loosing, of Jesus' presence. There's a lot there. Um, and if I'm going to be very honest, I can't get to all of it. Not in the amount of time that we have, and not without becoming very, very teacher-y and not pastor-y. And so I'm going, to have, I'm going to confess something. We're going to focus primarily on verse 17 because I think it's the hardest one for me to uh, understand and it's, it's the one that I wrestle with the most. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to give some characteristics of Matthew's gospel as a whole. So just kind of take a step back. And in this first gospel, um, one of the first characteristics, it's kind of like a foundation block, is this gospel is very much so... Uh, Jewish. It's, it's saturated with first century Judaism, with Jewish cultural ideas. And looking around the room, I don't see any first century Jews, so I'm going to uh, have to give some uh, context as to what's going on, uh, and I'll do that in a little bit. Uh, a second characteristic, kind of, again, foundational block for this text, is something actually that Ben Campbell and I would discuss a lot uh, when I was interning here. And it's this idea that the first gospel is filled with language about the kingdom of God and the citizens of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is constantly talking about how the kingdom of God is here, how it's breaking in, and when he teaches his moral teachings, he's constantly trying to tell us this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is the morality of a citizen of the kingdom of God. So that'll be an important uh, thing to look out for and pay attention to when we read these verses on morality in the church. It it is that morality in, in the kingdom of God. And finally, the, the third characteristic, it's kind of a lens that I want us to put on while we're reading and working through these verses, it kind of comes off Urbana being a missions conference, is that this first gospel is very missional. It constantly has Jesus going from place to place. It has Jesus sending out the disciples, and it ends in the Great Commission to the apostles to go out to all nations, making disciples and baptizing. And so this is going to be a huge key to understanding the verses that we're discussing today. So, a little bit of first century context. Uh, I won't go too long on this, because I know it can be a little boring. Um, In first century Judaism, the Jewish people held two beliefs very firmly. The first one is there's one God, and his name is Yahweh. And for them, this is a very important thing, so important that when Rome took over Israel, Rome gave them an exemption from saying Caesar was God because they refused. They would not do it, and Rome was worried that they'd have to just wipe out this country because they, if they were to actually enforce this law. So they, they were so, so strongly held on to the idea that there's one God. And the second idea is that Israel is God's kingdom on earth. And now there's a problem here, because Israel, the kingdom in the first century, doesn't exist. 
Israel is actually controlled, as I said earlier, by Rome. And so there's this dual idea that first, Rome is against God because they've taken over his kingdom. And that God will send a Messiah, a military leader that will throw out the Romans and will reestablish God's kingdom on earth. So again, there's that kingdom idea popping up again. So we were discussing tax collectors. And we know tax collectors today. I know taxes uh, open up in a few days from now. Um, and we don't usually like the idea of taxes, tax collectors. Uh, young people, when you, you get a job, you'll very quickly realize that you're losing a portion of your income to taxes. And it's a very big frustration if you've planned out how to use your money based on the exact amount you're supposed to be making. Um, we don't like tax collectors. But in, in the first century Judaism, there's a bigger issue at hand which was that tax collectors were Jewish people in the Jewish community who were betraying the kingdom of God. These are people that were active traitors against, in, in the eyes of the Jewish people, against God's kingdom. They were active traitors against Israel, and therefore active traitors against the king of Israel, God. Not only that, but they would also skim off the top of the taxes. They taxed slightly more and skim off the top for the sake of money. And so they were resented by the people of Israel. They were hated, and they were actually pushed out of the community. They couldn't take part in many of the, uh, the ceremonies of community and also the religious ceremonies. Then there's another group, the pagans. And now, when we read pagans and we look back, these were people that worshipped um, gods like Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Hades, Ares. And those are story names for these characters. But today, those same characters, people still worship them today. They just worship them in the name of fame, money, success, efficacy, power, control, pleasure. Those are the, those same gods. We've just removed the stories behind them, and people constantly worship those. I know I worship those in my own life at times. And so more specifically with the verses that we're reading, uh, this first gospel is separated into about five major uh, sermons from Jesus. So specifically, we're in the fourth sermon, uh, most commentaries will either call it uh, the Christ's Discourse on Greatness and Forgiveness in the Kingdom. It's a very lofty title. Um, other commentaries will just call it Christ's Church Discourse. Um, I'd like to propose that both of those working together kind of make up the verses as we should understand them. And so now for the verses. I'd like to reread verses 15 and 16. They say, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen to you, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here we can see kind of the, the point of all the verses. Jesus begins this small section explaining that the point is actually to reconcile with, with, with those people that you have an issue with. The point isn't to cast them out first and foremost, but actually to seek renewed relationship with them. And so I know that this is difficult. Uh, in my own life, uh, a while back, I had a friend who I was getting closer and closer to this person, and I, I really um, enjoyed them. They were a fun person to be around. And a few months into our friendship really budding, I found out that they were saying things behind my back that weren't true. And so my immediate move was I just cut them out of my life. I was like, you know what? No, this is not okay. I'm done with you. And then a few months later, someone came to me and said, hey, you know, you and him were really close. What, what ended up happening? And I was like, oh you know, he did this thing, he said things behind my back, and you shouldn't be friends with him, right? And I was like, I was doing exactly the same thing that, that he was doing, right? I mean, but you don't realize how much of a hypocrite you are when you're young. 
it goes back to an idea that I like talking about, which is youth and ignorance are the same word. Um, <laughs> but now, as we go to these verses, Jesus moves on from the idea of, you know, approach them individually and talk to them and try to figure it out between the two of you. Don't shame them. Don't just ostracize them, but speak it out with them. But there's a chance that they'll reject you if you do that, right? And then they might reject you in one of two ways. The first way they might reject you is they might say, yeah, it's not that big a deal. You know, this is usually my response when I get correction from uh, people that are important in my life. When they tell me I'm doing something wrong, usually my knee-jerk reaction is, eh, it's not that big a deal. I can keep doing the thing I'm doing wrong. And Savannah can attest that I do this way too often. Um, but the other option is they can very easily say, well, my sin was worth it. You know, my, my friendship with you mattered less than what I got out of this sin. And this is why Jesus says to take another person or two with you and explain to them what happened. Because first, that, those other people might say, yeah, you're kind of blowing it out of proportion. Maybe it's not that big a deal. And they can act as a mediator between you. The other thing is, they can go to that person and say, hey, you know, maybe you're saying that your sin was worth it to lose one friend, but you're not just going to lose one friend. You know, your, your view of us changes, and you're actually affecting all of us. Your sin isn't only between you and the other person. Your sin affects the whole community. And it shows that weight. And then we get to this next verse, if they continue to say, to, to reject the idea, where it says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If even, if even then the sin is not repented of, we go before the church. And now the word church here, in all the readings that I have, it's, it's an unfortunate translation. It comes from a, a Greek word that later on in the New Testament can very easily be translated church because there was a church. But here Jesus is discussing with the disciples something that doesn't exist yet. There is no church. And so what we have to understand, again, is that Jewish background. And what this word would have meant to the Jewish people is kind of the community in which you live and work and worship. Because remember, these are, are villages that together would, would go to the temple on, on Jewish holy days. This was a community that worked together, that helped each other. When we see Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of John, for instance, these are people that, that celebrate marriages together. Maybe these are people that mourn together. I know, for me, I recently uh, was, had the honor of uh, leading a eulogy. And that was a very difficult experience, but it was also an experience that I had with my new family. And that meant a lot. And, and being able to be there with them, uh, it was just more weighted. And so maybe a better word here for us to be able to understand it a kind of analogy would be more like good of the family, right? This, this isn't like you're going to a group that maybe they go to, but they can always just go to the church down the street. This is the, their family. This is the place that they work, live, celebrate, do everything with. And so in these verses, um, we, see, we see this verse, treat them like a tax collector. And like I said earlier, pagans and tax collectors not liked, removed from the community, and so we go to, go to these verses and we think to ourselves, you know, yeah, these people are being unrighteous, unholy. You know, we should just reject them. That makes total sense. And, you know, Jesus is saying this. I'd like to see how he lives out this commandment, right? How does Jesus treat a tax collector? And the nice thing is, Jesus actually meets a tax collector in this first gospel. What a show it must have been, right? I mean, if you're like me, every time that Jesus approaches the Pharisees, he makes all their learnedness seem so small. I know he does this to me all the time. He makes all the books I read seem so meaningless in my own life. 
I can't wait to see what he does to an obvious sinner, like a tax collector. I mean, come on. Jesus uses the idea of tax collector as the example of the worst unrepentant sinner. How intense must their interaction have been? How, how much of a beatdown must it have been between Jesus and this person? Matthew 9 has Jesus approaching this tax collector and says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Jesus, first of all, we see is on a mission, right? He's moving from place to place. And he walks up and he sees this tax collector in the very act of betraying his own people. I mean, come on. Like, I'm waiting with bated breath to see what Jesus does. See, I, I personally, I like watching the beatdowns, right? I like debates. I, 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 I go on YouTube when I'm at work and listen to videos. And often, uh, one of my favorite people to listen to is William Lane Craig as he debates atheists. And every once in a while, I'll come across a video that says, William Lane Craig absolutely destroys Sam Harris, or something like that. And I always click on those videos, and they're, you know, William Lane Craig's like a mild-mannered guy, so he's just like, you know, talking normally. But, but it's something about that title that we like, you know. Or, or for instance, the only movies that we watch nowadays, right, are Marvel and DC movies, superhero movies, where we get to see good guys beat down bad guys, and bad guys try to come back. Or for some of you that are more into sports, I have, I have my friend Ian, who's excited, he's ready, during the Super Bowl, he's, he's going to get to watch his team, the Patriots, lose to the Rams, and it's just going to be so... <laughs> or how about our pol political scene right now? So much of it right now is just based around the beatdown between left and right. It's constantly just this battle between them. We love to watch these fights happen. Similarly here, I come to these verses, and we're waiting to see the righteous one, our man, absolutely destroy the traitorous scum tax collector. I mean, the man's been caught in the very act of betraying his, his people. He's betraying both king and country, and in this case, that king is God. We're waiting to see what it is that Jesus does. So let's keep reading what verse 9 says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. What just happened? Where's my smackdown? The fight. Where's my act of the righteous rejecting the immoral? Don't worry, we're not the only ones surprised by this. I'm sure Matthew is too. Matthew, the man that would one day compile these stories that we're reading right now, this first gospel, has been rejected by his people for years, for his own actions has so lived into his own sinfulness that he probably accepts it by now, that no one will accept him. And here comes this rabbi, straight from healing a paralyzed man, enters into his life with a radical invitation, a surprise forgiveness, to leave his old life behind and to follow Jesus. This is how Jesus treated the tax collector he came across. But I mean... Come on, that's, that, that can't be the example, right? Because Jesus knows how people will respond. So maybe he came up to this tax collector because he knew he would follow him. Maybe, maybe that's all that's going on, right? So now let's, let's look at Matthew, right? Now that he's um, entered into this new life, has been invited and entered into this new life, he's going to separate himself from those bad influences in his life, right? He's going to take a step back, and I'm not going to uh, interact with those tax collectors or those sinners that were my only community. I'll, I'll remove myself from them and... And we'll be good, right? 
Let's see what Matthew does the next thing, his first act as a disciple. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked him later, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Matthew does not forget his friends who are in the very act of sinning. In fact, the text refers to them by their identity, which is sinful, by their identity as tax collector and sinners. But Jesus doesn't forget his friends. In fact, it's because they're in his life and they're his friends and he knows they're going the wrong way that he offers them an invitation to. Matthew, more than any other disciple, understands that Jesus is calling him into mission. Right? The very first act he does is to bring other people the good news, to invite them to have a meal with Jesus, to invite them, come, I have someone I want you guys to meet. Have a meal with him. It's going to be a small party. It's going to be a weird group, but I'd like you guys to meet this person that I know. It's intimate. It's close. It's real. He's inviting them to actually know Jesus. Not first the, the group, not first the disciples who are, appear to be standing off to the side, but first and foremost to meet Jesus. We, do, we, the readers of these verses, often understand things more like the Pharisees do than like Matthew or Jesus do. Why is the holy God sharing a table with these sinners, these traitors? Oftentimes, the way this looks in my own life is I think Jesus isn't sharing the table with people in prison. Jesus isn't sharing the table with people that are drug addicts. Jesus isn't sharing the table with people that are making mistakes. He isn't calling them into new life. They're unclean. But the message of the cross is that he shares the table with them just as much as he shares the table with us because every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us has sin clutching at some part of their soul. Every one of us has habits in their life of sinfulness. And in the same way that Jesus constantly is trying to invite us into new life, invite us to take off the old clothes of unrighteousness and put on the new, in the same way Jesus is doing it for them, they're just further back on that same journey in that same place. Jesus calls these people ill. Now, this is one of those points that I want uh, some of you to notice. Jesus doesn't just say, oh, I love you, you're good just how you are. Jesus doesn't do that. He refers to them as sick. He refers to them as ill. But he also refers to the fact that there's a cure. There's a new life that they can be living. And this new life is through him. He's the cure. His presence, his forgiveness, his cross, his love is the cure for these people, is the invitation into new life for them. Now again, I want to remind you that Matthew's gospel is very missional in its focus. It's focused on mission. It's focused on going out to the others and inviting them into new life. And we see now why it is that Matthew remembers this scene and records it in his gospel. Jesus, in the midst of teaching on forgiveness, he first starts about teaching about the lost sheep and the fact that the shepherd will go out for his one lost sheep. But then it gets to this part where he where the, the obvious question rises in our mind, but what if someone's sinning against us and, and we can't trust them? What, what if someone really doesn't repent of their sins? What if they're lost and want to be lost? And Jesus gets to these verses. You can almost see the scene. The disciples gathered around him, listening to him. Jesus speaking, and he says in verse 17, if they refuse even then to listen, tell it to the group. 
and he refuses to listen even to their family. Treat them as you would a pagan. And then he looks over at Matthew, a little gleam in his eye. He says, treat them as a tax collector. And you see, everyone there knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Don't believe me? Paul, right, or Peter, right afterwards, asks the question, how many times are we to forgive our brothers when they sin against us? See, everyone there recognizes the relationship that Jesus had with Matthew. Everyone there recognizes what it is that, that Jesus means when he says those words. So how are we to understand verse 17? First, we have to understand that the community is a place where rules are set, right? Where we say, you know, this is actually beyond the bounds of what's acceptable. This is, this is the gospel. This is living for Christ. And the things outside of that aren't okay. And it's okay for the church to say, you know, here's, here's what's good and here's what's not. Through, through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of Scripture, the gospel should be the place that we go to understand what, what is beyond. Where is it that we are traitors? Where is it that we do become ill? And all of us know those places in our lives whether that be places where we're worshiping fame or money, where our goals are success, efficacy, where we want power, control, or whether we're simply seeking pleasure. The church can be the place that says this is beyond it. We have to be bold and say unequivocally, without hesitation, that something's unacceptable and that certain things mean that our brother is lost. But again, going back to those verses that Jesus said right before ours, we have to recognize someone's lost before we can go and seek after them. If we simply say, oh, everything's acceptable, everything's okay, we'll never know when someone's lost, when someone's beyond, doing something that goes against what it is that the gospel actually tells us to live for. We have to be bold enough to say, a sheep is lost before we can look for it. We must first recognize that a sheep is lost before we can begin to look for it. These verses, Jesus is telling each of us, for those people in our lives that sin against us, that, that don't repent, or that have moved themselves away from us because of sinfulness, because of anger, because of something like that, that we have a mission. Our mission is to re-invite them to the table where Jesus is eating, to reintroduce them to what forgiveness looks like, to show them that radical forgiveness and this doesn't mean that we accept the fact that they continue sinning, but it means that we invite them into a new life, a new life with, with God. Moving a little bit forward from there, verse 18 says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this shows the incredible weight that Jesus places on the decisions of the church and the decisions of individuals in the church. That the community of God's actions have an effect on the ultimate reality of believers. And we, and we know this. We recognize this. I mean, I've read a lot of the atheist thinkers, and oftentimes one of the big things that they get frustrated with is places where the church has failed, has been corrupted by politics or by violence in the past, where the church has decided rather than following the risen Christ, they follow all the material things that make up life. Atheists will constantly point to those things and say, see, that shows that the church isn't isn't what it claims to be. And that's a place where the actions of the church have bound those people. At the same time, the church can lose people. I mean, look at the actions of missionaries as they go overseas 
and help people when it comes to their medical health or build wells or take actions in people's lives and say, you are loved and we're going to love you the way that God loves you. Those are places where the church is loosing them to faith, is inviting them to faith, is inviting them past unbelief and into true belief. And I have a friend who, um, I have a friend's sister that I know who confessed to me once that she fell away from the church because she had some moral failing in her life and rather than going to her in gracious correction, the church had responded to her with reprimanded scorn and exclusion. And that had, had pushed her so much away from the church that she couldn't accept even the gospel after that. And so those are ways, it shows the weight of our actions when it comes to other people's lives. Verses uh, 19 through 20 say, Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. We read these verses and understand it to represent our right to move past Jesus' command, judge not lest you be judged, and to allow us to judge in his place. Oftentimes I've heard these verses used to mean exactly that. That we're allowed to take the position of Jesus, speak in his name, and bind those that do wrong and seal their fate. But that's not at all the heart of Jesus. And I think that's why he says, there am I, and two or three come together in my name. He doesn't wish for us to judge others in the manner of judges, righteous, stepping up and giving them the smackdown. If we understand verses 19 and 20 in context of Christ, we see that Jesus is the one that calls Matthew in the midst of his sinfulness. We see Jesus as the one that communes, that has dinner with sinners, who challenges them to change their ways and invites them into new life. So in a reading verses 19 and 20 here, when we pray, we too can pray for reconciliation, to regain our brothers and sisters. We can, like Matthew, invite tax collectors to a meal with Jesus and hear the words of our king. We can follow Jesus' pattern of embrace, to embrace those that sin against us, as I prayed at the very beginning in the Lord's Prayer. Is this a dangerous path? Yeah, it's a challenge. Jesus isn't afraid to challenge us. Is it scary to open our arms and embrace towards those that have just sinned against us? It most definitely is. There's two parts of an embrace, if I can use this metaphor a little bit, um, that I like to focus on. First, when you're embracing someone, especially someone that sinned against you, you have to move past your anger, self-righteousness, right? Anger makes us feel righteous. You have to move past that. You have to open your arms. And then you have to wait. This is the dangerous part, right? Because one of two things can happen here. Either you can regain your brother or sister, uncle, aunt, father, loved ones, friends, or you can become their victim because you're so vulnerable when you open your arms up. But just as Jesus opens his arms up and we nail them to the cross, we have to be able to follow that dangerous path that he set for us, to, to love others and keep inviting them even when it is that they themselves refuse to listen. Jesus' act of forgiveness and our act of violence all too often scares us away from actually saying you're forgiven to people that don't seem to want the forgiveness. It's radical, dangerous forgiveness. 
But it's that exact radical, dangerous forgiveness that Jesus sends the disciples to the whole world to make disciples of them, to baptize them with. He sent them to the Jewish people, but he didn't just stop there. He sent them to the pagans in Rome, but he didn't stop there. He sent them to the ends of earth, even to Irvine. Is this dangerous forgiveness that we are to embody in our mission? Like I said earlier, we too are on mission. Our mission field is first to those that sin against us, to show them forgiveness, an invitation into renewed life. We are alongside Matthew to invite our tax collectors to a meal with Christ, to a new way of life. I'd like to close with a an image that I came across really early on at my time at Vanguard. Uh, kind of goes back to um, something that Gary preached on a couple weeks ago, this idea that God's knowing us and God's loving us come together as an idea in the Gospels. And so if you'll allow me, it's, it's a little poetic, and I promise it is based in Scripture. I can tell you which ones. But, um, but it's, it's a sort of vision, if you will. At the end of history, on the last day, Revelation says that Jesus will be sitting on the white throne, judging the righteous and the condemned. Every single one of us will stand before him. And I can just see it, him sitting on the throne. Revelation says, shining like a sun. He looks like a diamond before us. He's beautiful. He's perfect. And as he steps down from the throne, he walks towards us. He walks towards me. I can see in his eyes that he knows every single sin I've ever committed. He knows every hidden mistake I've made. He knows every thought that I've thought. He sees everything I've done that has destroyed me and that has hurt others and that has hurt him. And as he walks closer to me, I begin to quake. I know that I deserve so much hatred. I've done so much wrong in life. And he steps up to me and I see the wounds in his hand and on his side for me. And it's too much. It's too much. I know what it is that I deserve in this judgment. And he opens his arms wide and hugs me. and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. With you I am well pleased. Father, I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for what you call each and every one of us into in life. I pray that we can, with the, with the help of your Holy Spirit, take the challenge you give each of us in our lives to find the tax collectors and treat them the way you treated the tax collectors. Amen.